our text this morning. As we hear from the living God in his word, his first Samuel chapter 28 and verses 3 to 25. And brothers and sisters, it is nighttime when we come on this fourth Sunday in Advent to chapter 28 of the book of Samuel. We enter the night in verse 8, and we're there all the way to the end. If you can have your Bible open to follow with me as we go, start by looking there in verse 8. The text says, So Saul disguised himself... And put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. It was night when Saul and his companions came to Endor. And it would be night once again when Saul and his companions would leave. The end of verse 25, the ESV reads, Then they rose and went away that night. Saul was terrified, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, verse 20 says. He was terrified and exhausted, spiritually, morally, physically. He hadn't eaten all day and all night, the text says. Have you ever been so afraid that you lose your appetite? The woman had evidently left Saul alone at some point in the text. The narrator didn't tell us that, but verse 21 says, The woman came to Saul, and she saw Saul's terror. She begged him to listen to her. Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Verse 22, Now therefore you also obey your servant, she says. Eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But the meal that we read about in the ensuing verses would have taken several hours to prepare. Verse 23 says, After Saul initially refused, he then listened to the woman and his servants, so arose from the earth and sat on his bed. And the woman proceeded to kill the fatted calf, to make the unleavened bread, Both processes would take several hours. It was a costly, extravagant meal. But this is the king. And the woman was afraid, you see. She would have wanted to ensure Saul's favor towards her. This is, after all, the same Saul who, according to verse 3 of our text, at one point had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. What this woman was engaged in was strictly forbidden in Israel. Consulting departed spirits was common among the Canaanites and other peoples of the nations surrounding Israel in the Old Testament period, but it was not permissible for followers of Yahweh. Leviticus chapter 20, 20, verse 27 A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. 
Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 and following, There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Saul knew that. At one time, Saul had endorsed that policy. Consider verse 9, when the woman first spoke to the king in disguise. Surely you know what Saul has done, she said. How he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? So at the end of it all, she made him a meal fit for a king. But it feels wrong somehow. Seems the woman didn't know what Saul did. What Samuel had told him, that tomorrow he would die. That this would be Saul's last supper. I quite like how the New Living Translation renders verse 25 at the end of our text. The NLT has, she brought the meal to Saul and his advisors and they ate it. Then they went out into the night. There are many things that are mysterious about 1 Samuel 28. But the first might be why this story appears at this point at all. Because if you were here last week, you know where we left off in verse 2 of chapter 28. We left off with David in danger of losing his life, not Saul with David having foolishly joined sides with the Philistines and trapped in a web of lies enlisted by Achish, the king of Gath, to fight against his own people, Israel. We don't know what's happened to David yet. When in verse 4 of our text we read this morning that the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And it's only that geographical note there combined with the note that we'll come to in chapter 29, verse 1, that we realize this narrative in chapter 28 is placed out of chronological sequence. Chapter 29 takes place, if you look at verse 1, in Aphek. In chapter 28, we're at Shunem and Gilboa. Those names likely mean little to you, but the key is that Aphek is north of Gath, where the Philistines were, but Shunem is quite a ways north of Aphek. The Philistines would be in Aphek before they'd be in Shunem. To be at Shunem means they'd taken up a position well to the north, on the northern side of the Jezreel Valley that cuts through the north-south ridge of mountains that's right in Israel's heartland. Saul has assembled his forces at Gilboa on the southern side of the same valley. The Philistine strategy seems to be to divide and conquer, to cut Saul off from the Israelites further to the north. All of which means this could be the most serious attempt so far by the Philistines to break Israel. But it's not in order. 
The narrator wants us to see something here. To see a point of correspondence between Saul and David. Both are in serious jeopardy. At this time when God was instituting a monarchy in Israel and establishing his kingdom in its Old Testament form, both the major players are serious failures. Last week we saw David deny his Lord. Sort of like Peter does, come to think of it. This week we watch as Saul betrays his Lord. Sort of like Judas Iscariot does, come to think of it. David will be forgiven and restored. Much the same way as Peter would be. Saul will take his life with his own sword. Yes, chapter 28 presents Saul more negatively than David. That seems to be the point of front-loading the narrative at this point in the text. There's something worse than being caught among the Philistines, the narrator's telling us, namely, being cut off from all communion with God. But both are in crisis, and we would do well to see once again, as we did last week, that God's kingdom isn't founded on the human merit or innate goodness of its first kings. Saul seemed to grasp that his end was drawing near. Verse 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And so verse 6 completes the scene as we read how in desperation Saul tried to obtain a word from the Lord. But terrifyingly, when Saul inquired of the Lord, verse 6 says, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets, which, of course, means it's the end for Saul. We've been expecting this for some time now. From the very start of the monarchy back in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we've known what was the one condition for this kingship to go well. Do you remember what it was, what Samuel said at Gilgal to Saul and all the people in the covenant renewal ceremony there in Gilgal? This is chapter 12, verse 13 and following. And now behold, Samuel said, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord, serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. We know which way Saul is gone with no sign that we have been able to detect of turning from his disobedience, chapter 28 is the culmination of all of it. Samuel's now dead, the narrator reminds us. The king the people had chosen for themselves is crying out, and the Lord wasn't answering because it was the end. And at the end, God was silent as Saul faced the greatest crisis of his life. 
We've seen the Lord not answer Saul in the past. But even then, in some way, Saul had the ongoing benefit of hearing God's word, either through Jonathan or through David or even through his own officials. And we've talked about how so long as that was happening, there was still hope for repentance in Saul's life. The grace of God was still at work. Even as recently as chapter 26, we considered David's ultimate intention, if you remember, in sparing Saul's life the second time. And I argued it was to urge Saul to repent. It was the gracious act of the coming king. But Saul didn't repent. And now it would seem it was too late. Yes, Saul finally inquires of the Lord, but we get the sense that it's not even now for the right reasons. And in case that's in question, verse 7 removes all doubt. Saul isn't seeking the Lord. Look at verse 7. Then, when inquiring of the Lord didn't work, Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Deuteronomy 18, verse 12. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. But this is where Saul's been at for some time. Do you remember back to chapter 15, verse 23, Samuel's final words to Saul in their last encounter? For rebellion is as the sin of divination, Samuel says. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Saul, he has also rejected you from being king. I think chapter 28 is simply the last straw in Saul's persistent disobedience to the Lord. I'm not just making that up on my own. It's significant. I think that it's this episode that we read about in 1 Samuel 28 that becomes the defining moment in the assessment of the life of Saul elsewhere in the Bible. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. You might want to turn there. It's to the right. Go past Kings. Then you come to Chronicles. First Chronicles 10. First Chronicles 10 recounts the death of Saul that we'll read about in 1 Samuel 31. But you just go to the end of the chapter in verses 13 and 14 in 1 Chronicles 10, and this is what it says. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the commandment of the Lord, just as Samuel had said, right? He did not keep the commandment of the Lord, and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. And then listen, the next statement is key. He did not, the chronicler writes, he did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death, turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now look at, I know Saul inquired of the Lord in our text and that the Lord didn't answer him. But the Chronicles passage is important here. There was a sense in which even as Saul inquired of the Lord, Saul was not actually seeking the Lord. Does that make sense? As demonstrated by his immediate willingness to seek out a medium to act in flagrant violation of the law of God, we don't have to squint to see that Saul has persisted even now 
in abandoning the Lord. And so I think there's an important and sobering truth that surfaces in this chapter, as much as we'd prefer not to see it. I think we have to take seriously the possibility that God may ultimately abandon those who persist in abandoning him. I think Saul says as much to Samuel in verse 15, doesn't he? Look there, verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, do you note that logic? God isn't answering, so I'll go the opposite way of the Lord, right? Is this the response of faith when God seems silent? No. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And therein lies the whole issue. Saul was desperate. Endor was two or three miles northeast of Shunem, which means Saul had to skirt the Philistine camp in order to arrive at Endor. Saul takes a considerable risk to even get there. And for what? What's the object of Saul's desperation? He says it. I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do, he says. Saul wants direction for the day of battle. But then look at Samuel's response in verse 16. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned you from you and become your enemy. Do you hear what Samuel's saying? Why are you asking me? Your quest should be to face Yahweh, not to seek me. Saul's real need wasn't for information. It was for communion with the living God, brothers and sisters. But as it had been all along, Saul wanted the results of God's favor more than he wanted God's favor. Brothers and sisters, watch for that in how you think of your relationship with the Lord. It is the Lord Saul should have sought. But Saul had abandoned God and gone against God's will over and over in his years as king. So now, when he was met so starkly with God's absence, Saul acts in a way that he knows explicitly violates God's will. Why? Because that's where Saul's heart is ultimately at. When faced with the final scene of his life, that's terrifying. If you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will endure God's silence and your heart will be revealed. You can't miss the deep incongruity in verse 10 when Saul swears to the woman in Endor, by the Lord, the text says. As the Lord lives, Saul says, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Saul actually swore an oath by the Lord, about his act of deep rebellion and disobedience to the Lord. Or in other words, brothers and sisters, Saul wasn't so concerned about the fact that God wasn't with him as he was about the fact that therefore he didn't know what to do to be successful in the crisis he now faced. He would do anything 
to get the benefits of hearing from the Lord, even to the point of breaking faith with the Lord, as First Chronicles summarizes it. So how do you know you're not like Saul? Ready? Because, because God's presence does sometimes seem distant in our lives, doesn't it? There are times when God leaves us in our affliction so long that we're tempted to say he's forsaken us. The Bible acknowledges that conditions like that can prevail in our lives. So how do we know whether we're actually in danger of being like Saul here? Here's the difference, I think. The difference is that when believers are terrified at God's absence, they instinctively turn to God, you see. They turn to God, to the God they think has forsaken them, and they complain to him about it. This is all over the Psalms, but just take Psalm 13, verse 1, famous. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me? And then after asking such questions, what does the psalmist do? Does he turn to necromancers or the equivalent of that in our day? No. After his how longs, how does he pray in verse 3 of Psalm 13? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. He goes on having dealings with this God, crying to this God to answer. That's precisely what Saul does not do. We might as well read the rest of Samuel's response, picking it up in verse 17. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. I just refer you back to our study and sermon from chapter 15 on that point to understand what Samuel references there. We won't cover it all again. Moreover, he continues, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines or in other words, friends, Saul's kingship would end in complete failure. And I know that when you heard this read and when I just read all that, there's questions that just come thick and fast after reading this account. I mean, questions like, did the medium at Endor really make contact with the departed spirit of Saul or Samuel? What are the implications of that? Would God use necromancy to make divine revelation? Was this a demonic spirit by which the medium was both surprised and manipulated? I mean, questions just pour out of a story like And I don't mean to dismiss them. But all I'm going to say is that in the history of the interpretation of this chapter in 1 Samuel, there have been widely divergent answers to those things. In part, that's because the narrative answers none of them for us. Right? So I'll give you my take, but I won't pretend that it's the final authority here. I don't think this is some kind of fakery. If you pushed me on this, I would say that For his own reasons, God must have permitted Samuel to come up, whatever that language of the text means, in order to speak his word of truth to Saul. 
I think it was Samuel in some way. In other words, I mean, Yahweh forbids Israel to use these means, not because they don't work, but because they're wicked. Right? But whatever you say on questions like that that pop out of this text, the point of the narrative isn't to address those aspects of what we wonder about. The point is to make clear one thing, that the Lord's abandoned Saul because of Saul's persistent abandonment and disobedience towards him. And that's the most terrifying thing of all. And so it's in that connection that I want to return at the end of this sermon to the fact that we're in the night time in 1 Samuel 28. This is intense darkness. And from even a basic reading of the scriptures, you will pick up on the fact that darkness and night tend to be symbols of the absence of God. Do they not? This is not a stretch. Consider on this fourth Sunday in Advent, if you would, the content of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 16 and following. In fact, if you would turn there, if you want to, it's page 536. I'd like you to see it. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 16, page 536, Isaiah says, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. You heard that theme already this morning? I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him, which is what Saul doesn't do. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, watch this, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? That's First Chronicles. That's the final failure of Saul. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony, Isaiah says. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is where we are in 1 Samuel 28, dear friends. It is the darkness of the absence of God. So Saul set out at night with two of his servants and went in the darkness to Endor, where there was a spiritist who practiced her black art. The Lord had turned away from Saul and had become his enemy. And one commentator puts the matter this way. Nothing is so utterly miserable than finding in the hour of greatest need that you had long ago placed yourself beyond the sound of God's voice and that you are totally alone. And it makes me think of another night. of another Last Supper. 
of how we shudder every time we read the words in the fourth gospel of John 13, verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And you remember the scene and Judas's exit? Surely we don't think John just wanted to tell us the time. He wants to tell us it was night. Oh yes, it was night. It was like entering the outer darkness itself. But the message that comes to us on this fourth Sunday in Advent is that it doesn't have to be this way. Because there was someone else who entered the darkness who would experience the abandonment of the Father so that we never have to. You know this text, Mark 15, verses 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness. Over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? see, there's a mistake you can make if you're not careful here. You can begin to think that you're quite detached from all this, that you're better than, not quite so stupid as, deserving of better than Saul or Judas. And of course we're not. And the glory of the gospel is that God's Son went through the darkness of God's absence for us that because Jesus was willing to endure the darkness of God's abandonment, we can now walk in the light of God's presence. Jesus' words on the cross, do they not remind you of Saul's words? In chapter 28, verse 15 of 1 Samuel, God has turned away from me and answers me no more. Hear it clearly as if for the first time, would you? Now, Two days from Christmas, Jesus Christ suffered the abandonment of God that you, dear friend, never have to. You are all children of the light, Paul writes. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober since we belong to the day, Paul writes. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. Do you hear those words? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The warning of Saul's life, the warning of Isaiah 8, these must be heeded. They will be thrust into thick darkness. But on this Sunday of all Sundays, the fourth Sunday of Advent, on the eve of Christmas Eve, we do well to remember that following Isaiah 8 is Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness 
have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.